For our first message this morning, um, are going to do an introduction to the book of Hebrews. Today's the day where we begin a new expository sermon series in the book of Hebrews. And what an exciting opportunity and joy this is to enter into a new book of the divine canon of Scripture. Why? Well, it reminds us afresh that we have God's living Word in our possession. Amen. It reminds us anew that God has preserved and He has protected His Word so that it can be a, a lamp to our feet. He hasn't just... Uh, wound up the clock as some of the deists believe and just set things in motion and we're just down here wandering around with no kind of compass or guide. No, He has given us His Word. He has spoken to us in His Word. And when we come to a new book of the Bible, we're reminded of that. And I hope that you would agree that at least to the very best of my ability, and it's far from perfect, I'm committed to an expository uh, demonstration of the gods of God's word and seeking to help us understand God's word, rightly interpret, rightly divide it, and seeking to apply it. And I hope that you're committed to that as well. Um, with that comes some responsibility. Uh, sometimes it will seem as though you're sitting in a college seminary class, and it's like, oh man, you know, this is technical stuff. Other times uh, it doesn't seem like that. But together, we're wanting to fully understand what does God's Word really mean? What is it really saying? And so with that, going into the book of Hebrews, we get the privilege, but also we get to exercise part of a responsibility as being church members in the local church of understanding something about the book of Hebrews before we just go right into it. And so, as you see on the board, I want us to consider through an introduction to the book of Hebrews, who wrote it, what date, what was the context, what was the environment in which it was written, to whom was it written, the people, and when we see who it was written to, that will flesh out for us the purpose of why it was written, and then what is most helpful with the book of Hebrews is when you understand the purpose of why it's being written, you understand the inspired writer's approach or framework of how he's going to address the situation, and then it helps you understand the contents. Without that framework, without that structure, that, or that understanding of his approach, of why he's writing this or how he's going to write it, you're going, as if it were, to the medicine cabinet, and you're going to start taking medicine, which contains content, but you're not taking it the right way, and it's not going to be helpful. Because I don't know how many of you have done this in your Christian journey. I was telling a brother before church that there's been times in my Christian journey where I've went to the book of Hebrews without understanding that structure, without understanding that framework of, of what he was doing, what he's trying to address. And I have walked away from the book of Hebrews very discouraged. Why? Because I'm a sinner still being sanctified. And I found no rest in Hebrews. There's a lot of warning passages in Hebrews. And so hopefully the approach of the writer in order to accomplish his purpose of addressing a situation in this church, we will glean something of a framework uh, going into our first message today. Well, let's consider just you on the board today something about the authorship of the book of Hebrews. The text of Hebrews doesn't disclose the name of the author, but it does reveal much about the author. It reveals his ability. It reveals his great concern 
for this group of Christians and his relationship to the people that he wrote to in this early church. Many believe since it's not called a church in the book of Hebrews that it was some sort of small home church, but that's a minor detail because at the end of the day it was a church. It was a gathered group of Christ's disciples. Whoever the author is, most scholars who are very well acquainted with the Greek language, they all agree he was very eloquent in his usage of the Greek language. In fact, the book of Hebrews out of the whole New Testament is one of the most eloquent pieces of literature on the face of the world. His use of rhetoric, his use of language, the way he structures sentences, he had a very good use of Greek and how to present an argument. We see, or we will learn, that he had a very thorough knowledge of the Old Testament prophecies. He uses and he interacts with the book of Psalms frequently. He interacts with the the various prophets, primarily Isaiah, to demonstrate and paint a picture of how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of these things. So whoever this author was, he was very well acquainted, wasn't he, with the Old Testament scriptures. He was well acquainted, as I said before, with the history of the people in this church who he's writing to. And this comes through in chapter 2. If you want to turn to the book of Hebrews with me to see these things, we're just going to get a sampling of how he was, whoever this author is, he was very well acquainted with these people. Uh, In that sense, it's different than a general epistle or a general letter, such as 1 Peter or 2 Peter. You remember Peter was writing a general letter to the dispersed Christians in different areas. So anyone could pick it up, Natalie. They could read one of the letters from 1 and 2 Peter, and they could be like, okay, yeah, this applies to me. I get this. But this letter is very specific. It's being written to a particular people who this author was familiar with. How do we know he was familiar with them? Well, look what he says here in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says in his message to them, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, referring to the Lord Jesus, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So I know that you have heard with me the message of the Lord. You have heard that. How shall we neglect so great a salvation? You see, he knows that they've tasted the things of the Lord. This comes through as well. In chapter 6, verse 10, where he says in his message to them, For God is not righteous to forget your work and labor of love. He was acquainted and familiar that these Christians who had received the message of the Lord had also enacted with great work of labor and love. He was familiar with their Christian walk. He knew them. And thus, one who, this author, intimately knew them, He was warning them against laxity or carelessness regarding their commitment to the confession of faith that they've made in Jesus Christ. Well, his great concern as one who knew and loved them was that their continued, you could say, indifference. His great concern was someone who knew their profession of faith, knew their former lifestyle of of applying their faith in labors of work and love, their continued inattention to their commitment and their confession to Jesus Christ combined with the pressures of an unbelieving surrounding culture, he was concerned that it could lead some to go astray. Now regarding 
this author, we cannot be 100% conclusive as to who was the man that was divinely inspired by the Spirit of God to write this letter, which really, as we'll see today when we begin it, doesn't read as a letter. One brother who has already studied this somewhat acknowledged before church that it is really almost as if it's a sermon. It almost presents itself as a written sermon that's been dictated by someone else or from the very hand of the preacher to go and to be read to these people because of the great concern that he has for their souls. Now, the early church has tried to identify the author of it. The early church, Father Tertullian, many of you remember him, we were going through church history. He argued that Barnabas, uh, who was a companion of the Apostle Paul, uh, that he authored this book. Uh, Irenaeus, another church father, he likewise defended a view of a non-Pauline authorship. Then following in the steps of another early church father, Jerome, and then at St. Augustine, Pauline authorship was assumed by most biblical scholars, and even in addition to that, the medieval church period, following the Council of Nicaea, they largely approved and largely accepted that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this, or that it was dictated to Luke, and Luke had written it after he had heard Paul preaching, he wrote it down, and then he took it uh, you know, to these people who wanted to uh, benefit from the letter. But something changed in the time of the Reformation. The view that Paul was not the author came back to the surface. And it was through the influential writings of like Erasmus, Luther, and Calvin that they began to be argued that no, the Apostle Paul wasn't the author. Um, Calvin, he preferred the idea that either Luke wrote it or that Clement of Rome, an early pastor in the Roman province, that he wrote it. And that wasn't original to John Calvin, another early church father, Origen. He also accepted that idea. But on the other hand, the Reformed witness during the Reformation time, it wasn't totally in unison. Erasmus, Luther, and Calvin, they didn't represent a consistency of everyone because we know this, uh, if anyone who has John Owen's commentaries on Hebrews, this multi-volume set of Hebrews, you think I'm going to spend an introductory message today of maybe 45 minutes on introducing us to Hebrews. Uh, he has about 1,200 pages of introduction to Hebrews. Uh, but he argued that, it, that he, very exclusively, that it was not Paul who authored this. Well, in summary of the authorship, God has not seen fit to specify or to make us to know with 100% certainty who the author was. Did you hear that, kids? God has chosen in His wisdom not to let us as Christians know 100% conclusive who authored this book. Now I ask you a question. Does that cause you to doubt this book? Would that cause you as a Christian to be on defensive if someone were to say to you, oh, you're believing in something? You don't even know the historicity of it in the sense of who, where it come from and who wrote it? Well, it shouldn't. And Why? Because if someone were to do the homework, if someone were really to examine the objective historical evidence of the facts, they would see that there's a lot of evidence that connects it to either written in the very first century by one of the apostles themselves or a second generation Christian who walked with the apostles. 
right? And then here's the third thing. I asked my uh, six-year-old this week, Naomi turned, you turned six. I asked my six-year-old, how else would be a way that we would know? Well, because the witness that it proclaims, seven. See, it always changes in the pulpit. Seven. Sorry, Nene. Seven years old. Okay, it always, it, it, it always comes down to this. Does this book, its revelation of truth, does it harmonize with the rest of Scripture? And beloved, you're going to see today, well, in part today, but definitely as we go through this in the months to come, that the book of Hebrews is one of the most eloquent, masterful, theological presentations of the truth of the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would go as far as saying that the book of Hebrews is the most imminent, clear representation of the truth of who Jesus is. So we know that it can be trusted because of the historical evidence, but much more than that, the, the, the truth of the book bears witness with the rest of the New Testament canon scripture that what it possesses is beneficial for us today. This gets to then the date and the destination because we may be thinking to ourselves, well, I, I do want to benefit from this book today, but it was written such a long time ago. When was it written? And who was it written to? What destination was it appointed to? Well, there's a couple of considerations that we have with the point and the date of the book of Hebrews. And oh, don't be tempted to think, oh, this is just information that really doesn't apply. Because now we start getting into the environment of this message coming into, which will step us toward the purpose And I hope that you understand the relevance and you see why it is so pertinent for us today in the age in which we live. When was it written? Okay. There's a couple of considerations to believe that this message written to this group of Christians, a specific church, was prior to 70 AD, prior to the great destruction of the temple in Jerusalem after the end of the Jewish-Roman War, which began, if I'm not mistaken, in the year 66. And so, uh, with that, we we come to understand that the writer of Hebrews is going to many times refer to temple worship. Most scholars believe that when the Greek, when he refers to what's going on in temple worship, he's referring to it in the present tense. As if when he's trying to draw his readers to the idea, listen, the sacrifice of, of the, the, the bulls and the goats, the blood of the bulls and the goats that's being shed, it doesn't wash away sins. He's, he's speaking that way in present tense as if he's writing to these people and they would have immediately said, oh yeah, you mean what's going on in Jerusalem right now? That leads many to believe that it was prior to 70 AD that he was writing this. Well, why does that matter? Well, it matters for this reason. Because in this book, he acknowledges because of his intimacy of relationship with them, that he knows that they were greatly afflicted, that they were suffering greatly. And that prior in their Christian existence as a church, as a community, they did it gladly. Okay? Why does that matter? Well, because of a little bit of history. A little bit of history. There is 
in an extant manuscript written by a Roman historian by the name of Suetonius, who lived between the years A.D. 69 and A.D. 122, in a work recording the lives of the first 12 Caesars, where he mentions particularly in the reign of Emperor Claudius, who lived A.D. 41 to A.D. 54, that there was an edict by Claudius, recorded in Claudius document number 25, that banded all the Jews from Rome because of, you could say, insurrections, because of riots and because of, of uproars. But here's a clue of why uh, they were banded. Here's a clue as to what was at the root of the hostilities and the riots and the uproar amongst the Jewish community living in the Roman province, which caused Claudius to make this edict, everyone get out of Rome if they're a Jew. Listen. Quote, this is a quote from Emperor Claudius' edict. Since the Jews constantly made disruptions at the instigation of one named Christus, he expelled them from Rome. In this context of why they would have been expelled from Rome prior to 70 AD, perhaps around the time of this church's existence, who's receiving this message to persevere, to don't give up, to keep fighting the fight. We learned that there was a mass uh, expelling of Jewish people because of an insurrection that was beginning or began because of a person named Christus. In this context, Christus is believed by many scholars as likely being a reference to Jesus Christ. Now that's interesting because that paints a picture for us. Here's a group of people in Rome who have come to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ which exclaims or which claims exclusivity as the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. Well, do you think that the Jews were happy about that? Of course they weren't. Look what they did to the apostles. And so you can imagine that if there were Jews, Levi, who lived in Rome, who had come to faith in Christus and started to understand that Christus, Jesus Christ, was the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and accepted the gospel, the other Jews in the community would say, no, 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 we're not going to tolerate this. If you're going to accept that young man, you're going to be banished out of the house. That's blasphemy. You can see the division that took place to the extent that these people were expelled. And and in this time when they were expelled, you would have lost property uh, ownership. You would have been marked as, you know, an outcast in society. Um, It would have been shameful, so forth and so on. And so it's very likely that the afflictions, the suffering the outside pressure upon them to compromise in elements of Judaism, which is one of the main themes in the book of Hebrews, was because of this situation here. They had, as Jews, accepted the Christian faith. And their fellow Jews in the, in the province of Rome was putting pressure on them to compromise. Okay, you want to believe in this guy named Jesus Christ? At least follow the Judaistic ceremonies. And we can blend Christianity with Judaism. Um, And this will come out more in the book of Hebrews. And so it caused possibly a great disruption. And that could be a source of evidence showing 
that it was written prior to 70 AD. We have another possible time of suffering to consider that's mentioned frequently in the book of Hebrews. The suffering to the persecution of Christians in Rome experienced under the emperor Nero, which took place in AD 64. And this is about the time when the great fires in Rome took place and the Christians were blamed by Nero. And perhaps this is the great afflictions and the suffering that Paul's talking about. Imagine, beloved, we're going to be reading a message to people that were Christians in this time of great social pressure and great social persecution. Now do you see how it's going to speak to us, even though we're not Jews who have converted to Christianity? The relevancy is astounding. There's another uh, element to believe that this was written prior uh, to 70 AD. And uh, it was uh, perhaps one of the most piece, the concrete pieces. And that is there's a reference in the latter half of the message to the Hebrews found in chapter 13 of uh, verse 24 where it talks about a reference to Timothy. And so Timothy could have been alive at that time, uh, or Timothy was very old at that time. Well, we talked a little bit about the, the people in some way, uh, the author's relationship to the people, but let's focus here a little bit about the recipients of this message. We understand that perhaps they existed in a climate that was very hostile to the faith. They, resi- they existed in a climate that was feeling pressure by others in the community to compromise on their faith. And this really kind of starts painting a picture for us of really why they needed to have this message. As mentioned earlier, as we consider the people, the audience who's receiving this, the writer's relationship with these believers is a very personal one. And it was his familiarity with them that he draws upon as he moves forward to interweave Old Testament passages with exhortations to move his brethren to persevere in the faith by how? Appropriating what they have already received in Christ, the forgiveness of sin, a new birth, opened eyes to the historical narrative of what God has spoken through the prophets. He appeals to that. Don't give up. Remember and be reminded anew what Jesus has accomplished. We see this in chapter 3, verse 1, this appeal to something that had happened to them. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 14. These, these are Christians. These are people who have believed. He says to them in verse 14, seeing then that we have, we, he's including himself with them, we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. You see, these people, they love the Lord Jesus Christ. They had experienced saving faith. They had a profession of truth. Chapter 10, verse 23 and 24. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For He is faithful that is promised. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love 
and to good works. I can't wait to get to these passages. You hear him encouraging them in the midst of this suffering and this affliction, this doubt, this turmoil that that we're in. Let us encourage one another, not compound our problems by focusing on the problems, but to provoke one another unto love and to good works. From these samples of Scripture at minimum, we can safely conclude that this church consisted of Christians who had tasted the heavenly reality of the grace of Christ. They confessed Christ with boldness in the face of the context and the environment and the societal structure they lived in. And they gladly suffered for his namesake. We can safely conclude that these were, if I may use the term, Bible-believing Christians. While there was a past faithful commitment, as evidenced in just those samplings of Scripture, and we'll see more of it as we get into the book, we also see, as evident from the message of the Hebrews, that there was a growing problem in their midst. There was a sense of apathy that was growing in their midst. There was a sense of disinterest or perhaps a lack of feeling toward the previous zeal in the adherence of their confessing Christ and what it meant to confess Christ beginning to bloom in their midst. This is the people we're trying to understand, these once committed Christians. Now we will see, even though they had such a glorious, faithful, good witness, were beginning to grow cold. We know this because of what we read in chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. The writer says, we have many things to say and are hard to be uttered. Seeing you are dull of hearing. For when the time ye ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracle of God. Why is this? You see the exhortation. What's happened with you? People who were once zealous to grow into this faith and learn more about the faith. And now when you're, you're, you're being tempted to go back to the rudiments of Judaism, these things that brought you no complete peace of conscience. Why are we having to come back and teach the basics all over again? What it ha- what's, he, what's he doing there? He's pointing out that there is some fruit in this church that it caused them to go backwards instead of growing forward. It comes through again in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, he just laid out a bunch of theology about the Lord Jesus and his priesthood. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, Why was there a lack of zeal? Why was there a coldness? Why was there this apathetic attitude and heart that allowed to be, you could say, developed or fostered in their midst? It comes through again in chapter 3. It's through the book often. That's why I said sometimes you can come to the book of Hebrews and you feel as though the writer is speaking directly to you. He warns here in chapter 3, verses 8, and then in verse 13, he says, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, 
referring back to the 40 years of wilderness the Jews experienced under the chastisement hand of God. And in verse 13 he says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There were some things that were beginning to be tolerated amongst them. In other words, there must have been some sense of willingness to compromise amongst themselves in some way to alleviate the pressure of what the society around them was placing on them. This leads to the purpose of why this author, whoever he is, who knew these people, AJ, who walked with these brothers and sisters, who knew of their past faithful commitment, he is so concerned. This is a recipe he sees for disaster. An outside society placing great force, great pressure upon them to compromise. Some of them perhaps even their family members. Their own apathetic attitude. This is an emergency situation which leads to the purpose of him being inspired, motivated by love to compel them to cling to the truth and to persevere. It was this, it was this and his deep concern for the spiritual welfare of this church to call them to make a critical and a decisive decision regarding their former confession of Christ. And make a decisive decision. Are you or are you not committed to his gospel claims and promises? This will come through. He really challenges them. Are you going to move forward with Christ? Are you going to go back? Decide today. It was, and it comes across as an urgent sermon, an urgent address, a much needed sermon to call them back to reassert afresh their belief in Jesus. Why did they need this? Well, we've touched in a little bit already, but, but namely because of remaining sin, outside afflictions and persecution. Who amongst them wouldn't have wanted some sense of peace? Right? And ease. It's not easy being in the middle of a a storm all the time. Perhaps it was, uh, you know, the fatigue of fighting always. No doubt there would have been among them a a weariness of enduring. (coughs) There would have been also, remember, a lack of outpouring of the Spirit in power as on the day of Pentecost. And all of this remaining sin, outside affliction, their own weakness of faith, desiring to have peace instead of the fatigue of fighting, the, the desire of, of, of stop having to endure and become weary of always well-doing, the lack of seeing great outpourings of the Holy Spirit. It was a recipe for apostasy and shipwreck for many souls. So how is this author inspired by the Holy Spirit of God going to try to address something as serious as this? It leads us to his approach and the structure and the framework, or that is the theology of the book of Hebrews. I would contend that there's basically three frameworks that are really overlapping one another, supporting one another, uh, helping one another 
throughout this epistle that this man of God who's helping these people who have grown cold, who possibly are on the precipice of apostasy, he uses to point them to the truth. The theology of Hebrews that's always in the background as we read these texts, especially today in verse 1, is eschatology. Now what's eschatology? It's a big word, but it's an easy word. It's talking about redemptive history, particularly the end times. In other words, the author knows that it's absolutely vital for him to point them to the fact of where they are at again, anew. They heard it once in the gospel already, the kingdom of Christ has come. But he wants them to understand where you're at in this big story. Remember afresh and anew that you are part of God's plan in redemptive history coming toward the end and oh, don't give up now. The understanding of the writer of Hebrews regarding the redemptive history was vitally important to accomplish his purpose of rescuing, as it were, his fellow brothers from the edge of the cliff. And thus, while his, waiter, his readers, they awaited the great day, the end or the consummation that they were in, he had to continually point them to the fact that they were indeed part of the fulfillment of what Jesus was accomplishing in the last days. Turn to Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. This is just one rhetorical device that he uses to do this. His readers were waiting for relief from this persecution, from this suffering. And here we come to Hebrews 11. Many of you have already read this. You know it. It's the great hall of faith. And he's using this Because like the saints of old, he wanted them to understand that in the new covenant, they, like the saints of old, were not looking for a physical reality of heaven on earth, the ceasing of strife, the peace from suffering and fighting, but rather they were to be looking for a better country, that is to say a heavenly country, a consummated country. Verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and they embraced them. And they confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declared plainly that they seek a country, and truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out of, they might have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared them a city. In this sense, in using this text, he is pointing to the fact that they are living in an age that composed of the same age that the Old Testament saints lived in. But they were looking for an age to come. And he amplifies this age to come. The writer of Hebrews is really painting a picture for them. There's there's two ages. There's the current age and the age to come. He does this in chapter 2, verse 5. He references the age. The authorized version says the world, the world to come. And then again in chapter 6, verse 5, again pointing them to something better, 
pointing them to in this enduring fight, there's something more, there's something in age to come. In chapter 6, verse 5, he says, to those who have, quote, tasted the good word of the Lord, and listen to this, and the powers of the age to come. So they have already tasted in some degree those who have received the power of God's word. They've already tasted to a certain degree the age to come in their current existence. And then he mentions again, even a city to come. Now with reference to theirs, and you could say our existence in this current age, looking toward a promised age to come, looking toward a city to come, it's important regarding the theology of Hebrews and the usage of what he's going to do to try to bring them out of this lethargical state, that the writer stresses that through Jesus' cross work, through His resurrection and His current reign, as He mentions in the book of Hebrews, which is at the right hand of the Father, that in a sense, the future realities of the promised age to come have indeed been partially brought into the current age in which they existed via the new covenant, which the writer is going to largely expound on when we get to chapters 8 and 10. Simply meaning this, that the writer clearly is teaching that in this new covenant era, there is a great overlap of something that's already started that they and us are part of and is working to an end to come. He uh, does this, this explanation of something that's been already initiated, something that's been inaugurated in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we'll be looking at today. He says, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers and the prophets, but he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So the last days, according to the the writer of Hebrews here, includes this time where Jesus' earthly ministry took place, initiating the new covenant which which they and you and I exist in. It had started the last days. They were part of the last days. Don't turn back now. Don't get off track now. We're in the last days. You sense how he's going to use that eschatology, their understanding of, of redemptive history, in particular the last days, to try to encourage them to hang on. Don't let go. He refers to again this understanding of the last days in chapter 9, verse 26. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the, of the world, referring to the Lord Jesus. But listen to this. But now, once in the end of the age, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, the sacrifice of Jesus didn't bring the age to an end, did it? But you hear in that, that we are in the last days. We are approaching the end of the current epoch of time. And you think, but Pastor Doug, it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus walked on the earth. Dear friends, get yourself one of those humongous maps of redemptive history. And you could see that usually in chunks of time, thousand years, usually in chunks of time with millenniums, God does something epic. Okay, And here we are, approximately 2,000 years, give or take 100 years, since the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friends, God could be ready to do something amazing in our own day and age. He references the last days in a vital connection to Jeremiah 31. 
Chapter 8, verse 8, the writer of the Hebrews says, According to Jeremiah, he saith, Behold, the days to come. This is Old Testament language saying, The end, of the consummations here, the age to come is upon us. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Through Jesus Christ, the inauguration of the new covenant, the age to come, has successfully begun in this current age. And we are already in it, but not yet fully realized. It's completion. So I just want to do something real quick for you. Here's the current age. Here's the age to come. Right here is the new covenant, the last days. This is where we're at. And I should really make use of this. Didn't think about this. But put that arrow on there because everything's moving toward the age to come. So as we're reading the book of Hebrews, we're reading and understanding how when the author of Hebrews is talking about the last days, when he's talking about the age to come, when he's talking about the great need, Nolan, the vital necessity to persevere, he understands it in the sense that we're there in these last days. Don't go backwards. Move forward. So eschatology comes out, the understanding of redemptive history, the understanding of the last days comes out a lot in this message. But there's another aspect that comes out in the theology of the book of Hebrews, and that's the nature of salvation and the perseverance of the saints. If these days have, like the writer of Hebrews and the other apostles believed, actually kicked off the beginning of the age to come, then the nature of what Christ had secured for His church needed by them to be grasped, held on to. They needed to decisively restate their commitment to what Jesus said He inaugurated and was still working unto completion. Christ's salvation is what was once and already accomplished. It stood in stark contrast to the temporal forgiveness that was offered in the previous Old Testament, earlier on in the current age. The, bulls of, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't remove and satisfy the wrath of God. Knowing this then, therefore, the writer identifies his message as a word of exhortation. In chapter 13, 22, he says, I beseech you, brethren, suffer. Listen to this word of exhortation that I've written to you in a few words. Their anxiety at being socially marginalized, no doubt, depending on which date you think it was written in, and perhaps even martyred, had it evidently become an unimaginable, exasperated reality for them. They were willing, Lily, to give up the faith. They were actually entertaining the idea that I can't take this anymore. We have to make some little small compromise to get these people off our backs. Or perhaps it was their unbearable weariness and endurance which was caused by their own failure to appropriate the full, complete work of the Savior to forgive their sins and thus remind them that I can't keep going despite the cost. He has loved me so much that no matter what they do to me, I will endure anything. Perhaps it was that. Maybe it was their own weariness and and their lack of taking and appropriating themselves what the gospel claimed and they once believed. Either of these temptations 
or a combination of them both would have certainly been enhanced by the lies of an unbelieving culture that surrounded them. No matter the reason, the writer with love as his motivation is most concerned that they persevere in their former faith and obedience to the Lord. He wants them to continue to practice their faith as if God's promises of the already but not yet are true and certain. He wants them to continue on as they formally practice their faith. Believe with all of your heart the former promises that by faith that was granted to you, you grasped and you formerly were willing to endure hardships and sufferings for. And he wants them to live as if the power is real for the present age in which they lived. Brothers and sisters, this book has so much application for us today. In our own culture, in our own immediate modern day history, many Christians today are not living in the power of what Christ has truly done for the present. We're growing weary. We're growing tired. We're growing doubtful. We're growing suspicious. We're thinking we can't do it. Well, guess what? We can't. But He wants to point us to the one who can. And that's the third element of this book of Hebrews, which supports the other two. And that is Christ. But before I go to Christ, I got ahead of myself because I got to say this because we're going to encounter them. This is why their weariness, their, 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 their unstableness is why we read so many warning passages in the book of Hebrews. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he stresses that those in the new covenant era, this already but not yet age, that tastes the glories of the fruits of Christ in His earthly ministry, the signs, the wonders. We've seen this. The other Old Testament prophets He's going to point to, we're looking forward to, we're looking back to it. We have a greater responsibility to persevere. He warns us. You have even a greater duty. No excuse. Chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 4 is one of the the biggest sections of warning to this church and draws forth the awareness of our hardening our own hearts through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, sometimes in the midst of affliction, we can begin to grow doubtful of the truth and the claims of the gospel and who Christ is that we begin to harden our own hearts to what He has promised us and that he, what He will do. And He brings that to the surface. Stop doing that. And then chapter 6, verses 4-6. through six, How many of you read this? I have to read this one because this is one of the most stinging ones. I, I've read this before and thought, how in the world can I be saved? It's because I was reading it the wrong way. It is impossible for those, the writer says in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, granted illumination and faith, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. You hear that? They've tasted the age to come. They have it. it but, but I thought it was in the future. No, you're, 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 you're experiencing some of it in, in, in a partial way. He says, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance is impossible, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. How many of you in here, don't raise your hands, but you've read that and you thought, I believe my conversion was real and I, I know I just sinned, 
But this says I can't be renewed. And you found no hope in it. Well, let's be clear. These warning passages in the context of the doctrine of perseverance, which is part of the theology of the book of Hebrews, which is a rhetorical device he's going to use doctrinally to get them to wake up and see the seriousness of the need of them to move forward and to not go back. The writer of Hebrews is not teaching that born-again believers can lose their salvation. He doesn't use these warnings, beloved, to promote doubt any more than John 10.28 or similar passages which promise eternal security to believers promotes presumption. Rather, just as a promise in the Gospels give us a Godward confidence in the midst of our trials and afflictions, so do the warning passages provide us a needed antidote for our wayward thinking and wayward practices. That's how he uses the warning passages, and that will become evident when we go through them. These passages teach us much regarding the theology or the teaching of the church related to salvation and the doctrine of perseverance, but they are not, these passages, to be approached as tests of apostasy. That's not what they're for. Because any of us at any given time could read them and say, I failed that test. I guess I'm an apostate. That's because you took the medicine the wrong way. You didn't read the instructions. You didn't have the prescription well understood. Those verses, the warning passages, are not to be used as tests of apostasy. Lastly, he tells us in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, what all of this is established upon, which comes through again and again in this message, and that is the teaching of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Uh, In closing, turn your Bibles to chapter 8, and let's look at verses 1 and 2. Here, the, the writer to the Hebrews, while he will spend time getting them to understand where they fit in the last days, as he's pointing them forward in the age to come, which he articulates they've already tasted, which is overlap to motivation, why they cannot give up. They must persevere. They must be reminded anew of the precious salvation they have if they get their minds off of the doctrine of Christ, none of it will stick. None of it will stick. And so he tells them, in short, this is the basic sum of the entire message I'm sending to you. Verses 1 and 2, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Or you could say, this is the main point. And this is when you get your pins out and you go, okay, what's the whole main point? We have such a high priest who was set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Where is he at, beloved? He's not in the grave. He's not a defeated former prophet accepting the reality that he wasn't accepted. No, he is pointing them to the reality that he is risen from the dead. He is sitting on the right hand of God. And that they ought to look to Him and persevere because of His seat of authority. His current seat and throne of power. He is with them, He said, unto the very end in the Gospel of Matthew. Continuing, not only that, but it says, He is a minister, a servant of the sanctuary, 
and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. So, as we approach the book of Hebrews, I pray that it will do for us what it did for them. It will help us to recalibrate ourselves of where we're at in God's plan right now. It's been a long time since the day of Pentecost. Brothers and sisters, it's been a long time since what we read in our history books of the great movements of God's Spirit and the great awakenings in our, in, in our lands. And we sometimes ask ourselves, do we not? Where is God? Brothers and sisters, it's going to do for us what it did for them. It's going to remind us that this plan is still unfolding. We cannot get weary. We cannot get tired. And we have to constantly remember that Christ is risen from the dead on the right hand of the Father in power, in glory, and is reigning right now. We don't have to get discouraged. We don't have to lose hope. We have to be faithful to our confession of Christ. And thus, what does it mean to confess Christ? That's the whole challenge of this whole message of the book of Hebrews. What does it mean to confess Christ? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Holy Father, uh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for these passages that are contained in the book of Hebrews. We, oh God, need them. I pray that as these early Jewish Christians who are facing very perplexed situations in their lives of affliction, trials, and suffering, that, Lord, you would use this message. And, dear Lord, our own day and and age in the midst of our own church uh, to speak to us. There are very many similarities. And I pray, God, that as we go through this, you will just rekindle within our hearts and within our souls those of us who have been given eyes of faith, those of us, O oh Lord, who have tasted and, and drank full um, all the way down to an empty cup of the, what the world and other uh, false ideologies and worldviews, Lord, had to offer. And you gave us, Lord, eyes of faith to look upon the bleeding cross of Christ and to show us the true reality of his priesthood and who we are in him and what he has done for us, O oh God, and what he promises he will continue to do. Father, use, I pray, this this precious book of Hebrews to, Lord, correct any wayward thinking that we may have, any sinful, Lord, apathetic attitudes that we have allowed to develop, uh, Lord, in our own personal lives and even in the church at broad. God, Jesus, we confess, is ruler and reigner over this present age. We confess that he is building and expanding his kingdom. And help us, O Lord, to understand our unique role in that entire process. And O God, above all things, I pray, I beg of you, Lord, through the power of your Spirit, help us who are weary, who are fatigued, who are tired, O Lord, of temptation and even suffering, and perhaps even those, Lord, who may be listening to this, even real physical persecution. Help us to persevere. Help us to confess Christ and be bold as lions in the age in which we live. We trust you will do this according to your own most holy, wise will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us take a short break and then we'll come back.